Good afternoon. Welcome and thank you all for joining us uh, for today's Capitol Hill briefing titled Exploring Income and Wealth Inequality. My name is Jeff Vanderslice and I am the Director of Government and External Affairs at the Cato Institute, uh, which is a DC-based think tank dedicated to the principles of individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. Joining us today are two distinguished panelists who will help us uh, walk through and understand the complexities of and differences between uh, uh, income and wealth inequality. Uh, and I should note that the catalyst for today's event is uh, this recently published policy analysis, which you all have on your uh, chairs titled Exploring Wealth Inequality. Uh, our first panelist uh, to speak today will be Scott Winship. He currently serves as the executive director of the Joint Economic Committee, uh, which is chaired by Senator Mike Lee. And he leads the committee's Social Capital Project, a research effort aimed at understanding the health of families, communities, and civil society. Prior to joining JEC, Winship served as a scholar at the Manhattan Institute, the Brookings Institution, Pew, and Third Way. He is one of the nation's top experts on uh, income inequality and social mobility. His research has been published widely, and he has testified before Congress on a number of occasions. Winship holds a PhD in sociology uh, and urban studies from Northwestern University and an MA in sociology and a PhD in social policy from Harvard University. Immediately after Dr. Winship's remarks, we'll turn to Cato scholar Chris Edwards. Uh, Edwards is the director of tax policy studies at the Cato Institute and editor of downsizinggovernment.org. He is a top expert on federal and state tax and budget issues. Uh, prior to joining Cato, Edwards was a senior economist with the JEC, a manager with PricewaterhouseCoopers, and an economist with the Tax Foundation. Edwards has also testified before Congress several times, and his writings have appeared uh, have been published widely. He is the author of Downsizing the Federal Government and co-author of Global Tax Revolution. He holds a BA in economics from the University of Waterloo and an MA in economics from George Mason University. Uh, so with that, we'll go ahead and turn things over to Scott. Uh, each of them will speak for uh, 15 or so minutes. Uh, and once they've concluded, we'll turn uh, the floor over to a robust Q&A with you all. Thanks for joining us. Great. Well, thank you, Jeff, uh, for the introduction. Thanks, everybody, for coming. We haven't stacked the room too badly with JEC folks, but appreciate that you guys are here, too. Um, so I should preface all of this by saying, even though um, I'm the executive director of JEC, like this is, uh, this is not me speaking for JEC. I think I, think I should say that. Um, uh, um, but that said, uh, this is a topic that I have studied for a while uh, in think tanks before I got to JEC. We put out a report recently in JEC after hearing that we held that I would encourage you to check out. I think it might be out there on the table or something, um, which is uh, sort of a primer on, on uh, income concentration measurement. Um, so I will try to say a few things. Um, my goal is to sort of get you all up to speed on kind of trends in inequality and all the complicated uh, uh, the complications with measuring it, um, knowing kind of where the debate stands, so you can all sort of be better consumers of this data when folks come to your offices and uh, and talk about rising inequality. Um, so things get uh, progressively murkier as you sort of get closer to the top 1% and, and more deeply into the top 1%. So for starters, um, let me just show you a few trends that are not about inequality uh, between the top 1% and everybody else that are just um, trends in inequality below the top 1%. Um, so this chart's just showing you um, three trend lines. Um, so in the middle, uh, appropriately enough, is the median. Um, so the median is just the, the household uh, that, that is richer than half of a ha all households in America and poorer than all households, the 20th percentile is a poor household. It's only richer than 20% of all households, poorer than 80%, and then the 80th percentile is, is folks at the top. Um, this trend line is showing you uh, uh, a measure of household income um, that comes from uh, uh, federal household surveys. Um, it's after taxes have been taken into account and after transfers have been taken into account. So that includes social insurance, like social security, unemployment benefits. It also includes means-tested benefits um, uh, such as TANF, uh, SNAP, 
Um, it also includes employer-provided health insurance as income, and it includes Medicaid and Medicare uh, as income as well. Um, all sorts of uh, details we can't get into right now about how you measure all that stuff. Um, but when you do that um, uh, and you adjust for the increase in the cost of living over time, um, you can see that um, uh, that it's not the case that that folks are no better off than they used to be um, 20, 30 years ago. Even, even since 2000, there's been <clears throat> modest income growth over time, uh, both for the median, which has increased by over a third. If that that goes up to 2016, if it went to uh, uh, if it went to, to today, it would be over 40 percent. Um, for the 20th percentile, it's risen by a third. Um, you can see a lot of that comes in the 1990s when we had a big economic boom. Um, but, but we're also sort of in the, in the midst of a pretty strong income growth after incomes had, had fallen because of the, the Great Recession. Um, the really lousy decades for the middle and the bottom, you can see, were kind of the 70s and, uh, and the 1980s, uh, and to some extent the 2000s as well. Um, uh, the big story here, of course, is that the 80th percentile pulls away is increased by 69% over time. Um, quite a bit more than, than both the median and the 20th, 20th percentile. Um, previewing slide I'll show you in a second. You, know, you can see that inequality between the middle and the bottom hasn't really grown by all that much uh, over the long run. Very similar uh, income growth for both of those. Um, one thing that I'm not going to show you, but you should keep in the back of your head, um, these trends are affected by changes in, in household uh, composition and family structure, for instance. Um, so one of the things that has suppressed income growth at the median and at the bottom is the increase in single parenthood over time because of divorce and out-of-wedlock childbearing. Um, I have some other analyses where I've, I've taken this exact trend um, and, I've, and I've looked at the median broken out by four different groups, um, married parent heads uh, whose, whose income has grown by 91%. Over, over this period at the median. Um, so instead of 37%, 91%. If you look just at single mom heads, uh, their, in, their median income has grown by 61%, not 37%. Um, among other heads uh, where there are multiple adults in the household, that's gone, their income's gone up 67%. Among other heads that are single adults, their income's gone up by 95%. Okay, so a big part of, uh, of rising income inequality between say, the upper middle class and everybody else is, is changes in, in family structure. It's complicated because the changes in family structure could also be driven by income stagnation or relative stagnation. So it's definitely a complicated story. But, um, but if, you don't, if you don't sort of take into account um, uh, rising single parenthood, it's, it's sort of hard to interpret these. Um, here's just another way of showing that um, uh, by different business cycles. Um, and the point here is just, uh, so the, each of these bars, you know, for, for if you go along the x-axis, these are different business cycles that go peak to peak. Um, in each case, uh, the bar is showing annual growth at the 20th percentile, annual growth in the median, annual growth at the 80th, and then uh, annual growth for the top 1% um, of, uh, of tax units, technically. We'll, we'll talk more about the top 1% uh, in, in the rest of these charts. Um, but the point here is that the 1950s and 60s, were both very good decades for income growth and, uh, and good decades for income equality as well. Um, you can see that the top 1% income actually grew by less um, than it did lower down. Um, as, we'll, as we'll see, like measuring the income of the top 1% is tricky. And so, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't it's possible that that's not uh, reflective. But, but at any rate, you can see the bottom 20, the, the 20th percentile actually grew faster than the median, faster than the 80th percentile. Um, the 1970s uh, are, were also uh, good for equality, um, except that they were lousy for income, income growth. Right? The 1970s was a bad decade for everybody. And that's important because you know, the top 1%, as you can see, their incomes really start to take off in the 1980s, um, and especially in the 1990s. Um, it's not the case that, uh, that the rise at the top, the timing um, coincides with income stagnation below the top. Right? Income stagnation below the top actually predated the rise in income concentration. The 1970s, you can see, he pointed to that one. 1970s, you can see, uh, were not uh, an especially good year for the top 1% either. Um, and then it just shows you what happened uh, between 2000, 2007, rising inequality. Uh, the 20th percentile actually lost income over that period. Uh, since 2007, an interesting story, um, th this measure of income for the top 1% includes capital gains that they've realized. So this is when you sell your house or you sell stock. Um, the, 
the money that you made versus what you had originally paid for it as a capital gain. Um, and, and the measure I'm using here includes capital gains. By that measure, as of 2017, the top 1% actually had not recovered uh, their income from before the Great Recession. So everybody talks about the recession hurt everybody, which it did, um, but, but it didn't hurt the top. Um, that's actually wrong. The top, in, in percentage terms, the top has done worse uh, uh, over time. Um, if you use other measures of income, you'll see that's not necessarily quite true. Um, and this is just showing you trends in the ratio of median household income, uh, the one in the middle, uh, to, to, to the household at the 20th percentile. And that top line is, um, is the official income measure that we use, that's, that the Census Bureau uses. So not much change in that over time. Uh, the bottom line is, is if you take taxes and transfers into account, the comprehensive measure that I was looking at. And that increases a little bit over time, but really... Um, you know, going from a low of 1.95 to a high of 2.1 is not dramatic increase in, in inequality, right? Uh, this is the ratio of the 80th percentile to the median, um, so between, say, the upper middle class and the middle class. And you can see that that's, that's really what's increased over time versus, uh, versus middle class uh, compared to bottom. Um, okay, and then, of course, the gap between those two lines shows you what taxes and transfers do for, uh, for inequality. Um, so you can see how much how much uh, reduction takes place. Okay, the rest is gonna be top 1% stuff. Um, I'll barrel through it. Uh, this, this, and and they're, they either come from the paper um, that's out there or I've, I've modified a couple charts from that paper. This one is just showing you that, um, that four different studies that, that look at the top 1% share of income and measuring income in the same way uh, basically find exactly the same trend over time. Um, uh, this is looking at fiscal income, which is just the income that's reported on tax returns. Um, there's lots of problems with that because a lot of income actually isn't reported on tax returns. Um, uh, it, it, uh, this one does not include uh, capital gains at all. Um, the unit that we're looking at is not households anymore. It's tax units. Tax units are basically tax returns um, with some non-filers kind of padded in at the bottom. Um, and, and some income assumed uh, going to them. But you can see a you know, pretty big increase over time. I'd, I'd point out uh, the weird thing that happens after the Tax Reform Act of 1986. Um, you can see that big leap in income. That's essentially an artifact. At least much of it is an artifact of, uh, of what shows up uh, on individual income tax returns. Um, uh, because of the way that the corporate income tax rates were changed, the individual income tax rates and the capital gains tax rates, it became more advantageous for, for people to report more income on individual income tax returns than in the past when they would have reported, uh, it would have stayed in corporations and been reported on, uh, on corporate income tax returns instead. So that's, that's not a real increase in the top 1% share of income. Um, it's, it's an increase in how much income is actually revealed uh, on individual income tax returns. And that points out uh, a problem with using um, fiscal income. And that's, that's been known for you know, 15 years or so now. Um, so the shaded outlines, you know, I'm, I'm keeping Piketty, Saez, Zuckman, and Otten Splinter um, and just shading those out. Um, the blue and green lines are now shifting instead of fiscal income. Um, they're looking at pre-tax income. Uh, instead of tax units, they're looking at individuals. Um, and you can see you get this weird thing. So these are two different, the, the two leading studies, I would say, on income concentration right now. Um, they go the opposite direction, right? When Piketty, Saez, and Zuckman switch from, uh, to pre-tax and individuals, income concentration becomes more severe. Uh, when Otten and Splinter do it, it uh, becomes less severe. Um, and, uh, and the reasons for the discrepancy between the two studies is pretty well known. Um, well, I shouldn't say it's well-known. I'll say Otten and Splinter have spent a lot of time um, figuring out why they're different uh, and, and make a pretty compelling case that on, on most instances they're sort of right on the merits and Piketty, Saez, and Zuckman are wrong. Um, this measure of pre-tax includes social insurance benefits for some reason, um, mostly because it's sort of hard to think about retirement income and when you count it, um, do you count it as uh, sort of the, the money you made before you contributed uh, to your own retirement or before you paid Social Security taxes? Um, do you count it as income then or do you count it as income when you're retired and you receive it as income? Um, to deal with that, they, they sort of put social insurance benefits in there too, including unemployment insurance, which is uh, a little bit weird. Um, okay, and now the blue and green lines again. 
for the two studies, this is just after-tax income. Um, so it's after taking all taxes, state, local, federal, into account, um, estate taxes, sales taxes, property taxes, um, and after taking all transfers into account. It also does this crazy thing where uh, it allocates other government spending. So the spending that's happening right now by our use of this room uh, gets allocated to uh, the top 1% and to the bottom 99%. Um, government deficits every year gets allocated as negative income uh, to people. So, so once you start moving up uh, to the top one percent, these issues of what do what do we actually count as income get a lot more complicated. Um, and uh, as you can see from comparing this one to this one, though, you know the real story and, and why these two sets of benefits differ is because of differences in, in the pre-tax income, post-tax income. <laughs> they they both they both. Uh, fall by you know roughly similar amounts. Um, okay, and then last one. Uh, this one is retaining those blue and green lines from the last chart, and just adding a couple others. The purple one is from the Congressional Budget Office. Um, you'll see these numbers a lot. Um, they are more sensitive to uh, asset bubbles. You can see in 2000, 2007, um, they get very high and then they plunge. That's because they include realized capital gains when people sell their stock or their or their houses. Um, all the gains that have been building up potentially for years and years and years get credited in one single year, right? So if, if you owned a house for 30 years and you make $2 million off of it, like you get counted as having a $2 million capital gain in, in that year that you, that you sell. The red line is from a study by Jeff Laramore and some others uh, that tries to account for that and to only give people income from gains as those gains accrue. So if you're a homeowner, you have a house for 30 years, you get some of that gain, you know, in year one that you own the house. You get some of it in year two, um, and you can see there you get uh, a very volatile trend as well. Um, so all this is to say, like measuring the the income of the top one percent is really really complicated. Um, we don't have uh, much consensus right now about which of these numbers is kind of the best way to think about it. Um, but if Ott and Splinter are right, then essentially there hasn't really been an increase in the top one percent share of income. Uh, since the late 1980s. Um, uh, if Piketty, Saez, and Zuckman are right, you know, there's been a pretty steady increase over time. Uh, I encourage you to read our primer, and which makes a case that, at least so far as the debate has played out, Ott and Splinter, I think, have taken a lot more seriously the differences between the two. Piketty, Saez, and Zuckman haven't really responded um, to their criticisms. Um, happy to talk more about any of that during Q&A or income mobility, uh, which is another topic, but... Um, Leave time for Chris. Thanks a lot, Scott, and thanks a lot, everyone, for uh, for coming uh, today. So Scott talked about income inequality. I'm going to talk about wealth inequality, which is really a very different thing. Uh, in political discussions, the two often get conflated, but they are very different uh, measures of inequality. Um, let's see. So uh, in case you haven't noticed, there's kind of a war on wealth going on in the Democratic uh, primary and the, the run for the White House. Uh, these are the sort of comments that uh, uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are uh, providing regarding uh, wealth. There's two kind of themes that, uh, you know, they keep coming back to. One is that uh, they, they sort of imply that we have a zero-sum economy, that any gains at the top must have been taken away from people uh, toward the bottom. And they often imply, these two senators, that uh, all wealth at the top is ill-gotten. Uh, none of it can be sort of earned legitimately. It's all sort of uh, illegitimate. Part of what's driving the current narrative, I mean, other than politics, is what I call the French reign of error. Uh, Scott touched on uh, the French economists Piketty, uh, Sayers, and Zuckman. Um, they've been publishing this data based on tax returns now for uh, over a decade, and uh, it's really quite dubious. They've been claiming that inequality has exploded since the 1970s, and all their data um, and presentation is based on tax return data. Um, tax returns only include 60% of all national income. So, so Piketty and his colleagues, they extrapolate and uh, make estimates for the other 40% of income, and that causes a lot of problems. So 
this is an income chart. I'm mainly going to be touching on wealth inequality, but this sort of repeats one of Scott's uh, charts in a bit of a, a simpler format. This goes all the way back to 1960. So the, the top red line uh, is the top 1% share of after-tax and after-transfer income from Piketty and his colleagues. Uh, inequalities increase a lot, it looks like, uh, by their chart. And as Scott touched on, this uh, report came out last year by uh, the two government economists, Otten and Splinter. Uh, they find they start with the same uh, data, the same data source, tax returns, and they come to a completely different uh, result. They find essentially that the top one percent share, measured this way, hasn't increased in half a century. Uh, I find that this this difference is remarkable, and I think that the the take home message is here that two groups of economists highly expert, starting from the same data source, can come up with very, very different conclusions, which of course would lead to very different narratives in the popular media about what has happened to inequality. So I'd suggest with all this data uh, and whatever you read in the newspaper, just be very skeptical and you've really got to dig through uh, the original sources and look at assumptions to see what's really going on with this data. So let's jump over to wealth inequality. This is sort of a similar chart, but this is wealth. This is the, the, the wealth holdings of the top 1% richest uh, Americans, and it goes back all the way to 1910. Uh, the red line uh, is the line from Piketty and his colleagues. Uh, they take tax return data. They uh, sort of capitalize it to estimate how much wealth each uh, person has. Uh, and then they sort of extrapolate to all uh, the, the whole universe of U.S. wealth. So their basic story is that, you know, a century ago it was the Gilded Age. Then the mid-20th century, there was more equality. And then in recent years, there's been a big rise in inequality. The top 1% share has doubled. Uh, earlier this year, two uh, expert studies came out showing that uh, Piketty and his colleagues have been exaggerating uh, wealth inequality that wealth inequality has risen somewhat since the 1970s, uh, but by much less than Piketty and colleagues are saying. So I think, uh, you know, wealth inequality has increased, but what I'm going to argue uh, is that it's increased because of uh, sort of positive reasons, because of growth and dynamism uh, and technology and globalization, forces that are raising all boats and raising everyone's standard of living. So uh, if that is the main cause of wealth inequality, I think it is, uh, then it's not necessarily a bad thing for society because all boats are being raised. So here's a quote from, uh, from Elizabeth Warren recently. She said, the top 0.1% of families in the United States now have nearly the same amount of wealth as the bottom 90% of families combined. Meanwhile, for everyone else, opportunity is slipping away, unquote. So here's the, the top 0.1% that Warren was, uh, was pointing to. Um, her data is off, um, uh, by the way, but so the, the thrust of her quote is that she assumes a zero-sum world, that the wealth that these folks have uh, is taking away opportunity from other people. I think it's the exact opposite. This chart shows you what are the wealth holdings of the, of the top 0.1% in the United States. These are people who have net wealth of over $16 million. Uh, most of their net wealth uh, is, is private business assets. Most of what the richest Americans hold is business assets. Jeff Bezos, the richest American, worth around $100 billion. The vast majority of his wealth is his ownership of something like 15% of Amazon. In my view, that wealth ownership is creating opportunities for other Americans. It's not taking away opportunities for other Americans. I think you, you hear the, the quotes from, uh, you read the quotes from Saunders and, and Warren sometimes, they have this sort of vision that the wealth of the wealthy uh, consists mainly of big homes and luxury yachts and that sort of stuff. That is not, they, they, they do own some of that, but the vast majority of what they own is active business assets that are out there dispersed across America generating GDP and jobs. Jeff Bezos' wealth goes to support 600,000 employees uh, who are employed by Amazon across the country and around the world. So I think top wealth helps create opportunities for other Americans rather than taking it away. So I'm going to argue here that, you know, the measure of wealth inequality is not really the important thing. The important thing is what causes wealth uh, inequality. Warren and Saunders and their rhetoric make it sound like all top wealth is ill-gotten. Uh, I think that's uh, far from the truth. So let's look at three uh, possible causes, I, I think probable causes of wealth inequality. So first is corruption. 
I'm totally with uh, Saunders and Warren when they talk about uh, top wealth, if it's ill-gotten, if it's from uh, distortionary regulations, if it's from subsidy programs and that sort of stuff. We should try to stamp out that type of uh, uh, the corruption that, or cronyism that creates wealth inequality. The second cause of wealth inequality, as I touched on, uh, you can call capitalism, and I mean that sort of in the best way. I mean markets and dynamism and globalization. I think that sort of uh, that, uh, that effect is raising all boats and raising the, the overall standard of living. Jeff Bezos has got extremely uh, wealthy. Uh, that may have increased wealth inequality, but I think it's raising the standards of living for everyone. I've done a couple blogs recently on uh, the Aldi grocery store chain. Uh, this really kind of fascinates me. Aldi is owned by the richest, uh, one of the richest families in Europe. It's a, a German family called the Albrechts. Uh, they've built Aldi uh, grocery chain uh, over many decades uh, and built up this great wealth. Aldi is known for slashing prices of groceries, particularly benefiting people uh, at the bottom. Aldi apparently even undersells uh, Walmart in grocery prices. So this one of the richest families in Europe has got rich by slashing prices for the poor uh, and middle class. So again, if wealth, if 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 that is uh, causing wealth inequality, I think it's immaterial. The important thing is that everyone is benefiting from entrepreneurs uh, generating that sort of growth and cutting prices. So this chart. Uh, I, I want to drive home the point that there's really no hard relationship between wealth inequality on the one hand and poverty or prosperity on the other hand. They're really different things. Wealth inequality and poverty often get conflated in public discussions. They're very, very different things. You can have countries uh, that are wealthy that with high or low in, uh, wealth inequality. You can have poor countries that have higher low wealth inequality. So along the horizontal axis here, you have wealth inequality measured by the Gini coefficient. Uh, uh, more unequal countries are on the right-hand side. Then on the vertical axis, you've got uh, uh, income per capita. So rich countries are at the top. So uh, if you look at the top right-hand corner, countries like United States, Denmark, and Sweden, they're very prosperous, high income. They've also got a high wealth inequality. Uh, the bottom right, you've got countries, other countries with high wealth inequality, like Kazakhstan, uh, Egypt, and Ukraine. Those are some of the most corrupt countries on the uh, in the world. There's indexes of corruption. They've got very high corruption, and I think in those in those cases, the corruption is causing you know the poverty as well as the high inequality. Then you've got countries like Ethiopia that are very equal, but it's an equality of poverty. Um, so. When, when politicians in this country say they want uh, more equality, you know, uh, Ethiopia has a, lot of has a lot of equality, but none of us really want to go where uh, the Ethiopian economy is. But there are mysteries here. Australia and Japan, as they point out here, they've got low wealth inequality, but they're also very prosperous countries. And economists haven't really figured out all these differences between uh, countries. And, uh, but, I, you know, the main point I want to stress here is that wealth inequality by itself doesn't really explain very much. It doesn't explain poverty or prosperity. Uh, it's really the causes of, of, uh, of wealth inequality that are, are the important thing that we need to, to look at. So I'm going to sort of finish up here before we go to questions, just uh, talking very briefly about uh, wealth taxes. So the important thing, again, is not the, the overall measure of wealth inequality. It is what is causing it. Is it caused by innovation and growth in the economy? Is it caused by cronyism? Is it caused, uh, and actually one thing that I, I jumped over, I'm going to go back if you don't mind. The, the third bullet point here, crowding out. So a third cause of wealth inequality uh, is what economists call crowding out uh, or displacement. As the welfare state has expanded in the United States and, and other high-income countries around the world, it has is, is, is created uh, 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 less incentive for middle-class and lower-income people to save. So measured wealth inequality has risen. Some of the, the countries that have the highest wealth inequality are countries like Denmark and Sweden. Uh, they have very big welfare states. Uh, because they have big welfare states, the middle and, and lower class folks have less uh, ability to save because taxes are higher and less reason to save because the government is, is covering them for most of their needs. So they have high measured uh, wealth inequality. So this is like a negative uh, of these three uh, uh, causes of wealth inequality. The corruption and the crowding out are sort of negative causes of wealth inequality. The capitalism or growth is a positive cause of wealth inequality. 
So that's uh, what I want you to keep in mind when you think about wealth taxes. The thing about Warren and Saunders, they both want an annual wealth tax on the richest Americans, and they don't seem to care what the underlying causes of wealth inequality are, whether it's Jeff Bezos who's creating value for the broader economy or whether it's crony capitalists that are undermining the economy. They would impose their wealth tax uh, on, on everybody across uh, the board. Um, I did a Cato study a number of months ago. You can look at it on our website. I, uh, there used to be a dozen countries in Europe that, has, that had wealth taxes. They've nearly all been repealed now. I go through the reasons why they were repealed. There's just three countries that have wealth taxes uh, uh, remaining. Some of the reasons, uh, some of the problems with wealth taxes, uh, they're a heavy burden on, on capital income. And when you damage capital, you're ultimately hurting workers in the economy. Uh, they really are an administrative nightmare. There's widespread avoidance and evasion in Europe. Uh, and there's plenty of loopholes. Uh, and if a wealth tax was ever imposed in the United States, it'd be, all full, it'd be full of, uh, of exemptions and loopholes. So Warren and Saunders assume uh, with their wealth taxes and the economists that are advising them that they, their taxes would be imposed on a, on a universal, complete measure of wealth. So everything a wealthy person like Bezos owns uh, his business assets, his home, his jewelry, his artwork, uh, everything would be covered by the wealth tax. Uh, in fact, if a wealth tax was ever enacted in this country, it would be chock full of exemptions because the lobbyists would really uh, take hold. And I point out farmland here because this seems to me an obvious Achilles heel of any wealth tax. There's no way in heck a wealth tax would ever hit farmland in the United States. The farm lobby is too powerful. So things like farmland would be exempted from a wealth tax. And so then what would happen? These wealth taxes are on net wealth, meaning assets minus debt. So wealthy people like Bezos, if this wealth tax passed, they'd go out, borrow a lot of money, they, then they'd, they'd start buying up Kansas and Iowa, all the farmland there, and that would reduce their, um, their tax base. It would create great distortions in the agricultural economy. There are, other, there are lots of other exemptions you can think of. State and local government bonds, that's the favorite current tax dodge of the wealthiest Americans. There's no way in heck, it seems to me, that a wealth tax would, would land on state and local bonds. State governments would, would lobby against it. So there'd be all these exemptions. The wealthy folks would borrow money. They'd invest in these exempted assets. The wealth tax would hardly raise uh, any money, which was the case in Europe, and yet we'd be left with this big administrative mess. So I'm going to leave it there. Um, again, the important thing here, I think, is that it's not so much the measure, it, what the level of wealth inequality is, it's what caused it. You have to think of the underlying causes. Is it good things like overall growth, or is it negative things like cronyism that we can do something and get rid of? Uh, thanks a lot for coming. Uh, we're happy to answer any questions. All the tough questions are going to Scott, uh, much smarter than more uh, scholarly than me on, on these issues. <laughs> Scott's been looking at this stuff for many years. So. Uh, I'm sure he's able to answer anything you, you folks uh, may want to ask. Thank you. Thanks so much, Chris. Uh, we do have a microphone uh, going around, so if you do have a question, please wait for it to uh, get to you. Um, questions? Yes, our first one right over here. So, so could you speak to productivity and if it matches income because I've heard I've heard maybe from people who are a little bit more on the left that like while it, you can look at the income if you match income based on productivity income should have gone up by almost double on some times, times. couldn't have planted that question better um, yes that so that you do hear these claims a lot um, there's there's charts um, Hillary Clinton had a chart that I've cited before when she ran in 2016 that was like you're working harder but your pay is not going up and so it showed like productivity increasing and and, and paid you know not quite flat but 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 not increasing nearly as much um, there are a bunch of problems with that chart and ones that are produced uh, by other folks on the left. Economic Policy Institute, I think, has the chart that probably gets cited the most. Um, the, the big problem is that you're comparing two different things in that chart. You're comparing how productivity has increased uh, throughout the economy, um, but then you're comparing that to what has happened to earnings or to hourly, hourly pay uh, for the median worker, right? Um, now... 
the the idea is that these these two trend lines ought to be rising together, right? Because in theory, people are paid for the value that they add to their employer. And so if productivity uh, for the whole economy has increased a lot over time, the argument is that worker pay should have increased by the same amount. Um, but we don't know how much the productivity of the median worker has changed over time, right? We know what the productivity for the overall economy has has done, um, but it could be that you know either because of globalization um, or because of the shift from manufacturing and producing goods uh, in the economy to producing services more. Um, ser- services are are much less productive uh, than manufacturing because you're using fewer machines. Like you think of an assembly line, you know where. Where you have widgets coming and workers are able to like do their their one task or their or their few tasks. This is sort of a vision of manufacturing circa 1950. Manufacturing doesn't look like this anymore, um, but but manufacturing is just, is just much more involves much more productivity um, than the services do. So if it's the case that some combination of globalization um, has made the Jeff Bezoses of the world um, way more productive than they used to be, um, than say Lee Iacocca was um, uh, as a as an auto exec uh, 50 years ago, uh, 40 years ago, um, uh, or if just most workers have, have shifted into services that are less productive, or you know we've all gotten a little uh, comfy uh, as, as society has grown more affluent and we're not, you know, we're spending time at work like browsing websites. I know none of you do this. Uh, browsing websites that aren't work-related, uh, having coffees, you know, with uh, with with people that are sometimes of dubious uh, uh, productivity. Um, it may just be that that we've gotten a little soft over time as a as a nation that rich countries around the world have as well. Um, the point is, until we have a measure, um, which is pretty much impossible, of what's happened to the productivity of the median worker. Um, we don't actually know whether whether the pay of the median has has kept up with the productivity of the median, right? Um, if you measure everything consistently, overall pay in the economy um, has kept up with overall productivity in the economy. The, the lines line up not just over the last 20 years, not just over the last 50 years, uh, but since like the Great Depression, essentially. Um, uh, the, the, the trends just track each other extraordinarily well. Um, the last thing I'll say on that is the question of whether pay is kept up with productivity is a different way of asking whether labor's share of income has remained constant over time or has fallen. If pay isn't keeping up with productivity, then by definition it means that labor's share of income has fallen. Um, so to say that overall pay has kept up with productivity is also to say that labor's share of income hasn't fallen over time. Um, there's a lot of dispute about this, but um, we'll actually have a paper out in JEC hopefully within a month, um, that'll kind of lay out a dozen different studies that essentially found that uh, either that pay and productivity kept up or that labor share of income hasn't hasn't fallen. So when you're saying pay, you're talking about total compensation. I mean, in theory, you know, productivity should keep up with total compensation. So charts that just show sort of productivity compared to wages are, are kind of meaningless because an increasing share of total compensation are uh, benefits, uh, health care and uh, pension benefits over time. I'd also say that, you know, we have a much better idea of the uh, accurate distribution for wages and much less so for benefits. Benefits are a little more mysterious exactly who, get them across, who gets them across the distribution. Yep, that's right. Uh, at the back there. Hi, Steve Perkins. I'm a financial consultant, uh, so I'm, I'm interested in a lot of your work here. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about a slide that Chris had that is probably your third or fourth one on the top 1% share of wealth. And whichever, yeah, this one, whichever approach you use, essentially the share has gone from roughly 20% to 30%, let's say, in the last 20 years. Is there some point at which you would become worried, uh, even if those gains are due to good, beneficial things for the economy? You know, if we hit 40%, is that uh, a problem that the top 1% has such a huge share of the wealth? And I guess partly I say this honestly because as a consultant in financial services, I like for people to have money. I like for individuals to have a share that they can uh, spend. But uh, is there a maximum point that you would shoot for and that top 1% share of wealth? So I don't think so. Uh, so I'll tell you one thing, an additional thing I noticed looking at this chart. 
So the, the green and the blue lines are, are more accurate. I think the, the, the Piketty line is uh, errant. And the Smith uh, Zidar's WIC paper that came out earlier this year went through in detail why the Piketty data is really off. If you look at the green and blue line in recent years, um, you'll notice that it's really we're back at the same level we were uh, in the mid-20th century. There's really only one decade, really the 70s there, that is really kind of off. And, you know, if you look at the 70s, was a, there was a bear stock market. The stock market was down over the, the whole decade, which may well be driving this data. So I look at that and I see a lot of continuity. I see the, 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 the U.S. economy has changed dramatically technology and globalization, everything that has happened, and yet uh, the top 1% share is kind of where it was in the mid-20th century. I think that's, that to me, that suggests that there's actually a lot of stability here. Uh, a, a second point I'd, I'd say on that is that Piketty had uh, his book that came out in 2014, uh, had theories about why uh, the, the uh, wealth concentration would continue to increase. Economists have generally shot down his theories why it would continue to increase. So I don't know, it may go up, it may go down. I, I really don't know uh, about the future. Can I say one thing too? Yeah. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but I think, so wealth is a really tricky thing to look at, either at levels or inequality. Um, precisely, Chris alluded to this in, in this issue of crowd out. Um, if we counted <clears throat> social security, promised social security benefits as, as wealth to individuals, um, then you would find wealth was more equally distributed than what these numbers show. Because uh, I think, it's certainly true in the Federal Reserve data, I think, I think in the rest of this too, Social Security benefits are not counted as wealth. Medicare, you know, promised Medicare benefits are not counted as wealth. If, if those programs weren't around, people would save a lot more than they do, um, and, and wealth would be more equally distributed. The other big problem is, um, so wealth is assets, less debt. So we count student loan debt. Um, on the debt side, right, um, which is which is a significant, especially if you look at twenty somethings or thirty somethings, it's a significant chunk of of debt. Um, why do, why do people take out such debt, right? Well, it's to finance an asset. That asset is human capital. Um, we don't count human capital on the asset side uh, in these statistics at all. Um, so wealth is just a really tricky thing. Lots of times, people don't count cars as wealth. Um, partly because they depreciate quickly, um, but still all these little things would add up if you, if you actually counted them. Yeah, the, so this why I, I started my talk saying income and wealth inequality are very different things. Income inequality, <coughs> there's all these different measures which may or may not include all kinds of government benefits, social security and food stamps and everything else. The wealth inequality measures never include government benefits, but lots of economists have argued you know, that they should. Uh, I know it's the Urban Institute does an annual study where they look at sort of the wealth that people have in Social Security mm. and Medicare. And off the top of my head, they have, their data shows that a, a, a middle-income person uh, retiring at 65, their Social Security benefits are worth about $300,000 to them. Their Medicare benefits about $200,000. So uh, th this goes to what we're saying about crowd out. The middle class has a lot of this wealth that is now government programs, essentially, but that's not counted in any of these measures of wealth and equality, so you have to keep that into account. I think there is a question toward the back of the room over here. Yeah, thanks. As you know, there's a lot of clamor for, uh, you know, basically redistributing wealth uh, or doubling the minimum wage. I, I wondered what uh, you thought the impact might be on, instead, the government uh, Increasing the wheels a bit on more employee-owned companies, kind of taking that approach as opposed to these other ideas that Sanders and France are throwing out there. I generally lean against that because I mean, there's a there's a finance expert back here who could probably tell us the number one rule in finance for for most people is to diversify, and I, I don't think it's a good idea uh, when uh, when people wouldn't when much or substantial part of people's savings or wealth is in the company they work for, and I think. I mean, memory serves 20 years ago when Enron crashed, they had an employee stock ownership program that, that turned out to be kind of disastrous because a lot of their employees, most of their wealth was in company stock. So I, I, I would lean against those sorts of uh, incentives, actually. Right here, front of the room. I think the problem with uh, concentration of wealth is always you can't have a discussion without talking about 
the outsized uh, influence of money on politics. I don't think anybody in this building would really believe the statement that I see here in the, the executive uh, summary that the uh, rich do not have an outsized ability to get their goals enacted in Washington. I took the Metro and I think that I must have seen 50 Coke industry signs at the Metro. <laughs> so Capital South happens to be the closest Metro to this building and the policymakers. Any comments? Yeah, we, we take on that issue in, in our paper. My colleague Ryan Bourne has written a lot about that, and he's, he's more of an expert than me. But, you know, some of his points were that if you actually look at uh, uh, the polling data about what uh, the wealthiest Americans believe, their, their beliefs, their politics, liberal, conservative, libertarian, actually pretty well uh, mimic what, what middle-income people's uh, political beliefs are. And if you, you think about Congress, you look at the list of the richest people in Congress, half are Democrats, half are Republicans. You think about wealthy people influencing the uh, political process, and I agree with you, they do. You've got folks on the left, the Soroses, and you've got folks on the right, as you mentioned, the Kochs. Um, it strikes me that that kind of washes out, or at least it doesn't matter so much if their beliefs kind of match the beliefs of the, the great majority of Americans, which I think they do. The other thing I would say is that there's a whole political science literature on you know, how much campaign finance uh, affects um, legislative outcomes in Congress. And the, and the, in the in the literature, and maybe Scott has looked into this too. It you know it doesn't show that that campaign finance actually leads to the uh, uh, you know there's not solid evidence that it really drives political outcomes. Um, there's another uh, uh, set of data that uh, looks at um, what about self-funded millionaires when they run for office. We can we can all think of some like uh, Mitt Romney, very wealthy, self-funded you know, campaigns, and yet uh, they were unsuccessful. So I don't think you know wealth. It, I, I think wealth certainly buys uh, influence and it buys um, connections and that sort of stuff. I don't think it drives outcomes as much as you might think. Yeah, I'd answer a couple different ways. So I, I looked a few years ago at the relationship between income inequality and political inequality, and um, I mostly cited uh, there was a task force that was created by the American Political Science Association um, in 2004, and their big conclusion was essentially like, we really don't know anything about the relationship between economic inequality and political inequality. Um, empirically, these are very difficult questions to answer convincingly. Um, there's all sorts of correlation that may or may not be causation. Um, uh, but, but I think the state of the literature today isn't any better than it was in 2004. Um, there are reasons to think that it, that it might be important. There are reasons to think uh, that, it, that it's not that important. Um, the, the other answer that I would give uh, is I would recommend the Peterson Institute for International Economics uh, recently had a big conference uh, on wealth and inequality and had a panel with Larry Summers, uh, who used to work for um, President Obama, President Clinton, um, and uh, Emmanuel Saez, um, the S in PSC, um, in uh, the Saez of Piketty, Saez, and Zuckman up there. Um, and, and Summers was just merciless uh, in a way that, that you might uh, uh, find more plausible. Um, and essentially what he said was like, like, I've worked in government, like, you have two billion dollars. That's all you need to influence government. Like your wealth tax is going to, you know, drop people down from, you know, however many billion to two, to two billion. That's not going to do anything on on money in politics, um, which is a slightly different answer. But essentially, it's that if you really wanted to get money out of politics, um, you, you know, you'd have to you'd have to level wealth beyond what I think even Sanders and 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 Warren are talking about right now. And, and that goes to the point that I said about the wealth tax is sort of this blunt axe that hits every wealthy person, even you know the entrepreneur, uh, like I talked about the Aldi grocery chain, the entrepreneurs have done great things lowering prices for poor folks, and maybe they don't lobby Washington at all, and yet they'd be nailed with a wealth tax. That doesn't seem to be the way to go. It seems to me you want to go after and eliminate the programs that are providing excessive benefits to people at the top. We have time left for one or two more questions. Anybody? I have one, if I may. You have one, Jeff? Yeah. Um, so a wealth tax would you know, necessarily require an accounting of one's wealth, I presume, on an annual basis, which seems like a massive undertaking. Could you two speak to whether that's uh, doable, whether it's plausible, what, what kind of um, uh, resources it would take 
uh, to, to make an accurate accounting of that? So I went into some great detail on that in my uh, Cato study a number of months ago, looking at the European experience. Again, the idea of a wealth tax is to essentially hit all uh, wealth, everything a person owns, small uh, business people, the value of the assets in their, their business. A lot of small businesses and mid-sized businesses in America are not publicly traded, so there's no ready valuation of the business. In theory, it would, it would hit everything, you know, the value of your pension plan, all your uh, artwork, your jewelry, your, your homes, your, uh, everything you own. There's a lot of valuation problems with this. We see those valuation problems with the estate tax uh, currently, which only hits a very small group of Americans, but it causes a huge paperwork uh, um, cat and mouse game, essentially, between the IRS and wealthy people. Um, that would be magnified uh, greatly in the wealth tax because the wealth tax would hit many more uh, people, of course, not just people dying in any particular year. Uh, and you'd need, uh, as you touched on, annual valuations of all their wealth, not just sort of a one-time uh, valuation. So those problems are, are, are part of why European wealth taxes were repealed. Um, Ireland, for example, they enacted a wealth tax in the mid-70s. Uh, for three years, they tried to, um, uh, to get the administration right and, and to impose this tax. They repealed it three years later because it was so, uh, they realized it was so difficult to impose. Uh, the UK in the 70s, under Labour government, got elected promising they're going to impose a wealth tax. For four years, they tried to impose a wealth tax. They found out the administration was just too difficult uh, so I, I think that uh, administration, it's not kind of a small issue with a wealth tax. It, it would be a big part of the problem. Yeah, I think Zuckman uh, has kind of been the, the spokesperson of the, the three of these folks for the wealth tax stuff, and he sort of has this naivete around issues like this. You know, he's, he's talked about, oh, we could set up auctions, and you know, if, if, something, if there are forms of wealth that don't have values now, we'll create these auctions and they will reveal the wealth um, like really uh, sort of Rube Goldberg uh, sort of uh, ideas, I think. Um, you know, there are, other, there are other small problems like the fact that a wealth tax, you know, very likely is unconstitutional. And like, oh, well, well that's what they said about the income tax. And, you know, we passed the 28th Amendment. Is that right? Uh, which one? 16th Amendment. 16th. Wow. That was <laughs> way off. Um, so, so, yeah, there's a little bit of naivete, I think, in, in terms of the practical uh, way that, even if you know, even if you could pass legislation, like how that would ever come to pass. Great. Well, thank you all. That concludes uh, today's event. Let's please give our two speakers a round of applause. Thank you.